Okay, we're reading, therefore, oh, I should turn this on, I'm so sorry. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whosoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery. That's quite a cool word. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised, meaning the the, the non-Christian world, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. If you'll allow me, I'm just going to pray. I always say that. I'm going to pray. And let's look at the scriptures together. Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for this message that you've laid upon my heart. I pray you will help me to communicate your truths clearly and that those clear thoughts, those clear truths would impact each heart that is listening here today. Father, all of us, including myself, don't want to hear from me. We want to hear from you. We want to be challenged not by me, but by you. So, Father, I pray that by your Spirit, you will meet us now wherever we're at and reveal yourself to us in such a way where we'll be captivated, we'll be stirred, and we'll be convicted in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I shared this a little bit of, a little, well, actually last week or the week before. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're exempt from difficulty. As I shared last week, it may not be what you want to happen, but it is something that probably you went through. Probably you might even be going through right now that might cause you to question or have questioned what God is doing in our lives. Especially when we look at some of the promises that the Scriptures have regarding our life of abundance in Jesus Christ. When we read such promises like Romans 8.28, that it is all things, not some, not most, but all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purposes. And so we think, well, yeah, that's, that's the promise, and yet I'm going through hardship. Then we read things like Jeremiah 29, 11, when he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And we look at that and think, well, where's my prospering? Where's my hope? Where's my future? And we think with the issues we're going through, we we question that promise. Or Philippians 4.19, that my God shall supply all your need according to his riches riches of glory in Christ Jesus. And so we ask, okay, well, 
yes, I, I know these promises, but in the midst of my suffering, I don't see the benefits that it has for me in the here and now, let alone in the future. Now, I said last week, life is hard. In some cases, excuse my language, life sucks. And so when we're faced with these obstacles that prevent us from seeing this goodness of God in all things, from experiencing these plans of a, for a hope and a future, of having all my needs met in these riches of glory that Christ promises, then there must be something wrong. There must be something I am missing, something that I'm not seeing in the midst of everything, in the midst of the suffering that is taking place. Now, I say something I am missing and the something that I am not seeing because, honestly, we can get so caught up in what is going on that we fail to see what we have, or more accurately, who we have. I remember one time when I was at the school working and I get a phone call from my wife on my on my phone, my wife is listed as Babe. It's just got Babe Helg. And so, and it's, yeah, that's, that's, and so the phone rings, and she, she's, you know my wife. She's always busy. She's always working. She's an amazing woman that I'm truly thankful for. And so she calls me, and she goes, hello. And she goes, hon, oh, I can't find my phone. And I'm like, pardon? I've been looking everywhere, and I can't find my phone. And I'm like... Really? And she goes, oh, hang on. I get it now. And then she hung up. <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. I, just, I thought it was one of the funniest things. But because of the busyness, because of the stress, because of the pressures of everything going on, she didn't get to actually see or observe what she actually had. She saw what was missing but didn't realize what she had was right with her. And we, we do this all the time as well. We have these obstacles, these hardships, these struggles, or even these sufferings that prevent us from seeing who we have in the midst of that circumstance. Like I said, it says up there, because we have been given all things in Christ, Ephesians 1.3 says, or every spiritual blessing. We don't see that when things aren't going, that, going our way. We lack nothing as we eagerly await Jesus' return in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. But we don't see that because of the pressures and that, that are just falling upon our shoulders continually. We have all things pertaining unto life and godliness, 2 Peter 1, 3. But we don't see that because of the disappointments that we're experiencing or the hurt that has been done toward us. So what the Lord does to expose our inability to see what, our, what we have is by, and please don't take this the wrong way, by increasing our dependence on Him and sharpening our spiritual senses through the blessing of suffering. Through the blessing of suffering, this is what I, well, this is what if you think of last week as well, we're continuing this theme. The blessing of suffering that we have in Jesus Christ, the blessing of suffering that enables us to see what God is doing 
despite the circumstances that we face. Remember, from last week, we had this theme of suffering and how through the example of Jesus, what that suffering can bring about. It is the reason why Peter writes this word in verse 1 of this chapter, therefore, therefore, or because of this. That's what last week we said, because it is God's will to suffer for doing right, in chapter 3, verse 17. Because Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That's why chapter 3, verse 18. Because he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, in chapter 3, verse 18 as well. There's this example of what Jesus suffered for us to draw from and learn from. Thus, we've been given this example in Jesus Christ, then followed by our instruction and how we live this out, or as the verse says, how to prepare ourselves. So, have a look at this. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Christ suffered in his body. He was physically hungry. He was physically weary. He, was, he sought to quench a physical thirst. He experienced physical harm when he was beaten by a whip. He endured physical pain as, as they, they punched him in the face and said, if you're a prophet, tell me who punched you. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a, a brutal cross on his back. They nailed him to a cross. And every single physical aspect of those acts, he felt. He felt, literally, to feel the nails go through his hands, to feel the nails go through his feet as he's sitting there and willingly giving himself up and giving himself over to people that he could but destroy with a word. Remember when he was being arrested at the end of John and a garrison of Roman centurions show up and ask, are you the Christ? And he says, I am. And they fall down flat on their face. With but a word, he could have commanded the angels of heaven to deliver him from such pain. But he didn't. He chose to suffer. And he chose to suffer for you. He chose to suffer for our wrongdoings. He knew complete and utter lowliness as he who is the propitiation, who is the God-satisfying sacrifice for our sin and for sin's payment, for our guilt before God. And I mean, what? He became sin. I say it all the time. He became sin not only for us but for the whole world, if you read 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, we read that. Jesus knew suffering, but yet in that suffering was able to clearly see, clearly know, and clearly experience an intimacy with his heavenly Father that you and I long to experience. Think about that. That when he spoke to his Father and his Father heard him and answered his prayer, that his father who spoke from the heavens and said, this is my beloved son, 
hear him. That he could sit there and interact with his father even when he weeps and sweats drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane praying for you and I. And then the angels of God minister to him. That's what he had gone through for us. And in light of that, we are told then in our instruction to arm ourselves. Before I get more specific, when he says arm ourselves in the same attitude, notice he doesn't say the same acts. Peter doesn't say arm yourselves with the same acts that Jesus did. Why? Because I couldn't die for your sins. You couldn't die for mine. I couldn't do a lot of those things that Jesus did. I mean, honestly, how many of you guys have fed 5,000 people with some fish and bread? No. I mean, the people I know in church that are close to it would be Ken and Penny, but they got, they got I mean, they, they, they had like 25 people or 25 people at their house last night after gingerbread, which I was not one of them. <laughs> Sorry, I said, yeah, I had, to, I had to bring it out somehow, because it's about me. No, just kidding. All right, so... All right, but you have, yeah, yeah, you have this, this wonderful illustration. We're told to arm ourselves with the same attitude, not with the same acts. So I want to look at two things in reference to this. Firstly, it's what I call the theological reality, the attitude that Christ had in his suffering. It says, since Christ suffered in the body. Jesus was not a theory guy. I mean, he knew the scriptures, he knew his heavenly father. He knew his earthly purpose. And so in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of the injustice performed toward him, in the midst of his, of his circumstances, there came, for some reason, it's just amazing how his relationship with his father got closer the more he suffered. The more he suffered, the clarity and the communication and the communion with his heavenly father grew closer. And it was it's just, and you see this. So I see, I just picked on three things. I, I called it, we have the attitude of complete trust. You see complete trust when you look at the likes of Jonah and Ariella with their parents. Complete trust. You see little Audrey and, 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 and little Micah, complete trust. And what does Audrey do? For some reason, for some reason, I don't know why it is with Audrey, but Jono was her favorite. I don't understand, but there is complete trust of Jono. He doesn't even like kids. No, just kidding. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. But like, like, I just saw this morning where Audrey sees Jono and then gave him a big hug and she walks away like this, like she's seen a, like a, a movie star. She's like, oh. <laughs> I was just like, and honestly, honestly, it was, it was really cute. It looked really cute. And honestly, I, I sometimes feel like that around Jono too. <laughs> but, but he was trusting in his father's will and trusting that his father's will is right, even if it took him to a place of suffering. Get that. Even if he knew it would take him to a place of suffering, he would say, okay, because I know your will and I know that what you do is right. That's why in Matthew 16, after he sits there and asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, 
the son of the living God. And then Jesus says this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain in verse 21 to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He's got it all laid out and says, this is where I'm going. Peter goes, no, 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 you can't do that. Pulls Jesus aside and the Bible says, rebukes him. You can't be doing that. You can't go to that place of suffering. You can't go to that place of death. And what did Jesus call Peter? Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You're completely contradictory to my father's will to what my father wants. Which means sometimes even the people with the best intentions can be doing the work of the devil. You have to bear that in mind. But that's the first one, complete trust. Then you have this attitude, the attitude of absolute humility, humbling himself to his father's ways, ultimately because he knows that's what's best for everybody that's concerned. We don't have a problem humbling ourselves to people who know what they're doing. Often when I have computer issues, often when I have any problem issues, I don't mean to be picking on you, Jono, but I will call Jono and ask him about, my wife and I want to buy a laptop, I call Jono, what's a good laptop? Okay, my wife and I needed money, Jono, no we didn't, okay. (laughs) But all, all I'm saying is when you have someone who knows what they're talking about, you have no problem humbling yourself to them. Absolute humility means the willingness to yield yourself to someone who knows better than you, even though you don't know all the answers. Even though you don't know how it will end up. And so Jesus demonstrates this. In John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, I like this. Jesus is talking about what he can do and what he will do. And he never goes off and does what he wants, but what his father wants. So it says, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do, sorry, he can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father, get this, this is why he does it. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. The reason why he humbles himself because he knows his father loves him absolutely. So you have this attitude of complete trust. You have this attitude of absolute humility. And you have this attitude of wholehearted commitment. Because he knows his father knows best. Because he knows his father can be trusted. He commits himself wholeheartedly to it committed to the plans of the Father in his holiness and knows that his Father always acts justly and always acts fairly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. He did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And if you're going to ask me, well, how was this just and fair if Jesus is going to commit himself to a will that will result in his death? Well, the evidence of why Jesus did what he did is found in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. 
when it says that in the resurrection of the dead, with Jesus rising from the dead, that is evidence that everything he said, everything he taught, everything he did was 100% legit. That he is the real deal. The fact that everyone could sit there and why every knee shall bow and why every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is because Jesus rose from the dead. And in that spirit of holiness, the evidence of who he was and who he is is made evident for all to see. And, look, and these, are just, these are just three of many, many more attitudes that could be named, whether they be faith or acceptance, whether they be compassion or mercy, generosity or care. But here's the thing. The creation, the cultivating, and the sharpening of such attitudes takes place in the midst of suffering, not in the absence of it. It takes place in the midst of suffering, not in the absence of it. For anybody who has played sport, you equip yourself in a certain way to play the game, but you can only practice for so long. You don't know how legit your skills are until you're in the game. In the workforce, you understand the theory of how things are done, the skills of how to communicate, the capacity to, to govern and to navigate people. You can know all of those skills, but it's once you're in the game that you find out how legit they are. Marriage courses, brilliant. Marriage courses are great. I encourage you to do a marriage course before you get married. Then when you get married, you realize how much of your marriage course is absolutely useless. But then also that which is very, very good. Parenting, exact same thing. Okay, it's once you're in the game. And that's the same thing here. It is in the midst of suffering that we start to look, or I guess you could say more accurately, we are forced to look at what is really important, at what really needs our attention, and what is really worth prioritizing. So the commitment, humility, and, and trust of God by Jesus was refined, was strengthened, it was evident in the midst of his suffering. And you know where this is best demonstrated? On the cross. When he's on the cross, everything he says here isn't about him, but it's about the plan and the will of God that he had set in place before the foundation of the world. When he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he's praying for his very persecutors, the ones nailing to the cross. When he says, today you will be with me in paradise, he's speaking to a thief, a penitent thief, who tells his mate to keep quiet because they're deserving of their judgment. When he says, woman, behold your son, he's talking to his mother, his earthly mother, and committing her to John. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. Both of these lines are said. One, a quote from, actually both a quote from Psalms, but both done as a fulfillment of prophetic scripture. Not for himself, because when he says, when he says I thirst, it even says that. He does it so, his, so the scriptures might be fulfilled. It is finished. It's about the payment that was made for your sin and my sin, not for his and that when it says, it is finished, I've paid your debt before a righteous God so that you might be accepted by him. That's what he means. A payment for us. 
when he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit, he's just leaving everything in his father's hands. That's evidence. That's evidence that in that suffering, it's amazing how he never lost sight of his father. He never lost sight of his father's purpose. In the midst of the suffering that was being able, it was, it was clarified. It, was, it is what Jesus was able to do in his suffering on the cross, that in the process of becoming the atoning sacrifice for our sins, becoming sin, becoming a curse, uh, Galatians 3.13, how he redeemed us by the cross, he who was, uh, by becoming a curse for us, redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. And in that suffering, there was complete adherence to God's plan, submission to God's will, and understanding of God's purpose. That's the theological reality. When he says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about that complete trust. He's talking about that absolute humility. He's talking about that wholehearted commitment. And with that theological reality, he says to us this practical instruction. Arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with the same attitude. Arm yourselves in the same way. These words, arm yourselves, means that we are to see our suffering, see our hardship, see our difficulty as the means through which God works in order for us to not only humble ourselves absolutely, to not only trust completely and commit wholeheartedly, but also that we see him do amazing things by God merely being God. One guy puts it this way, suffering can teach us to depend on Christ. Things once thought insignificant take on new meaning. Other things lose their value. Sinful desires become less alluring if we learn to depend on Christ to help us through. But the reason why we don't do this, the reason why we can't do this, is because a lot of us, haven't developed these attitudes of trust and of, of, of humility and of, of, of commitment. We haven't mastered these things practically in our lives because we don't take advantage of the tools that God's given us to do so. Let me explain. So when, we, when, we're, when we're preparing... When we're equipping ourselves for various things, like the, the sports game, the sports illustration I gave before, we don't recognize those, I guess you could say, practice sessions that God has given us in his word. We don't recognize those practice sessions that, that teach us to suffer in like in a controlled sense. Let me explain. For example, here's one, here's one. Fasting. Fasting. These are, these are some of the avenues, fasting, prayer, Bible reading, evangelism. These are some of the, the avenues that God has given us, the instructions that God has given us to increase our dependence upon him. You could say that these are our self-inflicted sufferings, our self-inflicted sufferings to teach us or to equip us with the tools to be able to trust and depend on Jesus so that when the real thing hits, when the, uh, when the poo hits the fan, we know, we know 
the tools that will enable us to walk through those difficulties. Does that make sense? Because look at fasting. Fasting is about dependence. It's about the denial of the body's needs in order to depend on Jesus. Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God in Matthew 4, 4. See, we won't know this if I'm continually stuffing my face. We won't know this if every need of ours is always met. We won't know this if we're always relying on our physical resources, knowing that, I, I, okay, a sister shared a testimony the other day, which was, which was really cool. I was really blessed by it, and she said something, and she said, look, I, I come from quite an affluent home, she said. And, and when she shared it, so which is basically, if I wanted to get something, I could. You know, and, and it's true. And, a lot, and I, please, I'm not, that's not a bad thing. I'm saying that's not a bad thing. But we become very self-dependent on those things. And I thought that was quite amazing. That, that's, that's why fasting, to deny yourself such things, teaches you how to depend on God. That when, you're, when your body is, is, it starts slowly eating itself because it's starving, instead of sitting there and shoving something in my face to satisfy that craving, to get on my knees and pray. To teach myself in areas of need, I can depend on Jesus and he'll take care of it. Fasting is a wonderful means to do that. Prayer is another one. Prayer is another tool that he's given to us to help us, to, to, to equip us with those attitude, because this is about the knowledge and reliance upon God's will. Asking according to God's will, asking for God's glory, asking for God's moving, and to see how, he, how we fit in with what he's doing. That's why in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, it says that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That means you and I praying, put in a situation that we can do nothing about. When I, 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 I'm so, this, is a, this is a positive thing I pick on Jono for now, but when my... I remember my brother Jono, and he, he came to the, to the hospital with him, and, and he just, and I was, man, I was, I was just, I was crying. I was like, boom, I was just, I was just breaking down, and I shared my heart with Jono, and we we're in the, one of these side rooms, and Jono put his arm around me, and he just prayed, I just prayed, because I was completely helpless. We were completely helpless. I couldn't do anything. My wife couldn't do anything. We could do nothing. And so to just get down and have my brother next to me pray and plead, you know what that meant? That meant I had to trust that what God was doing was the right thing, no matter how much I didn't like it. That was hard. But what that taught me in the midst of that suffering, it gave me a clearer vision of what God was doing, even if it was just in my own heart. That's what happens that's one of the avenues that he's given us to trust him in those situations and to ask according to his will, not just about what I wanted, but what God wanted in this situation. That's why prayer is so important. That teaches us. That's a self-imposed lesson to help us in our suffering, to prepare us for when the, the stuff hits the fan, to prepare us for that. Bible reading. 
is the same thing. This is where we are given an insight into the very mind of God as we discover the will of God as revealed in the Scriptures. It's the sword of the Spirit that articulates the very mind of Jesus Christ to know what he's thinking and what he desires so that when I do pray, I do pray in accordance with what he wants to commit myself to the whole word of God, accepting it and then abiding by it. For if I merely just pick and choose what I'll abide by, I'll be like the seed that lands on the thorny ground that gets choked out by the cares and affairs of this life. Or I'll be like the seed that lands on the rocky soil that when the harshness of persecution comes down, I'll choke and die. That's why Bible reading is so important, because it shows me God's mind. It prepares me. It prepares me for the suffering that I will encounter. And then evangelism. Oh, evangelism. Yeah, that, that's a real self-inflicted, self-inflicted suffering. To step out by faith to look and share the good news of Jesus is, is one of the, not only one of the greatest privileges we have, but also one of the most least done things within the church today. Apparently, the statistic is less than 2% of the church actively share their faith with non-believers. Actually, just actively share their faith at all. And why is this so important? Because it pushes us. It pushes us to rely on Jesus that he might be moving somewhere where we don't see, that he might be doing something in someone's heart which we don't know. It forces me to be less about myself and more about him. Mark 16, 15, we're told to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In 1 Timothy, we are told to to preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. You see, these four, I guess you could say, divinely organized, self-inflicted sufferings are placed before us so that we might know what to do, so that we might know how to respond, that we might know who to rely on when the storms of life's sufferings overwhelm us. When we get that wave of hardship that hits us, we'll know how to trust. We'll know how to be humble. We'll know how to commit because we've been spending time developing those skills in each of our lives. Personally, the boxer Knox knows what to do in an official bout because he has spent months practicing and training as he prepares for it. The soldier knows what to do in a firefight because he has trained and practiced in the strategy of warfare. The child of God knows how to trust, humble, and commit themselves to Jesus in trial because they have armed themselves with the same attitudes of Jesus Christ through fasting, prayer, reading the word, and reaching out. This is why suffering can be considered, although very difficult to accept, a blessing. A blessing. Actually, a huge blessing because it says this. Whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their lives, sorry, the rest of their earthly lives for evil desires, but rather to the will or for the will of God. Have you ever noticed when you go through hardship or when you go through struggles, I know this for myself, when you go through difficulties, have you ever noticed how you don't really care, you don't really care? like for example, when, when we had to our, our trial, I didn't really care about the latest episode of The Walking Dead. 
I didn't care who was playing sport the next day. I wasn't looking forward to anything particular or anything like that. I wasn't concerned about all of that. You know what I was concerned about? I was concerned about my daughter. I was concerned about my family. I was concerned about brothers and sisters in the church. I was concerned about praying and seeking God in the situation because I didn't understand. And the harshness of the suffering that we went through as a family that gave me a clarity of sight to see God and what he was doing even though I didn't get it. That's what the blessing of suffering does. Now, I don't know what you guys are going through. I don't know the hardships that you're experiencing, but I do know this, that if we are not able to see Jesus in that, the suffering's gonna be even worse. If we can't take a step back and understand that there's a bigger picture involved, then it's gonna be a hard task to get through. If you read the hero, in Hebrews 11 about the heroes of faith, you, you'll notice that there's a combination of the theological reality and the practical, the practical instruction. Because it's a record of how God works in their sufferings, works in their trials, works in their circumstances, and yet they were still able to trust God, depend on God, see God. But I want you to bear something in mind here. Um, I was thinking about, I don't know why I'm standing like that. There was an example. Abra, when Abraham sacrificed Isaac, on the altar because God commanded him to. You notice, you notice when he asked Abraham to do that? It wasn't at the start, was it? Wasn't that Genesis 12? It wasn't that. You know what had happened up to that point? Well, Abraham gets caught out to be a liar. Abraham sort of runs away from different things, lies about his wife, tries to protect himself. But in all of those things, God is working with Abraham. And in each of those things, he's developing in Abraham this absolute humility. He's developing in Abraham this wholehearted commitment. He's developing in Abraham this complete trust. So then when it comes to God says, sacrifice your only son to me, Abraham goes, okay, okay. Would he suffer? Yes, but he knew his God. You might be in that process now. You might be in the beginning stages of Abraham where these things are being developed in each of you. So that when it comes to the part where God says, trust me in this, you'll say, okay. You'll say, okay. So Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16, we see this, how all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In other words, in context with what we're talking about today, wasn't concerned with the here and now, but looking beyond. Now, I'm not trying to diminish the hardships you're going through. I'm not trying to dismiss the fact that you're having a difficult time or anything like that. If you're going through suffering, look, you don't have to go through that alone. If you're going through suffering, come alongside somebody so we can pray for you, so we can journey with you. If anything, though, the answer is not found in me. The answer is not found in Alyssa. The answer is not found in anyone else around us. But what we can do is help direct you to the one who does have the answer. I can direct you to Jesus. I can give you a hope in him. I can give you your comfort in him. I can point you to him. 
And that in that, you, in that suffering, in that, that lack of understanding, in that, in that hardship, you can see the beauty of the sun and say, okay, Lord, I'll trust in you. That's, and, and that's the, the, the beauty of the gospel, the, the harshness of life, the, the blessing of suffering. These are, these are aspects of our relationship with Jesus that, while not fully appreciated by us at times, are put in place for our benefit to teach us how to trust, how to walk humbly, how to commit holy. That's what they're there for. I like what Paul says, just to close with this in the New King James. He says this, and this is my encouragement to you as well. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is the blessing of suffering, that God, through it, will enable you to see eternity past the temporary nature of what we have in front of us. So please don't lose heart. Please don't be discouraged. Please don't be disappointed. Please look to Jesus and allow him in that suffering to make himself more glorious to you. That's what I want to leave you with today. I was going to sing a song, but I think we'll just pray. I think we'll just pray. And if you want to be prayed for, um, I'll ask the, the ministry team leaders and cell group leaders just to come up. You, know, you don't have to be on the camera, just on the side. And, and if you want to be prayed for, we would love to pray for you. We'd love to journey with you. We'd love to encourage you. We would love to point you to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you so much for the example you have given us in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that as he suffered in the body, you have equipped us and called us to arm ourselves with the same attitude. So I pray that whatever it is that we might be going through now, you will help us to see you, that we will trust you completely. We will humble ourselves before you absolutely. We will commit ourselves to you wholeheartedly so that you, as the glorious Son of God, the, the glorious King of kings and the Lord of lords, can reign supreme in each of our lives, regardless of the darkness and the oppression and the, the overwhelmed pressure that we might be surrounded by. We thank you that you are a God who delivers, that you are a God who has set us free, and that you are a God who is with us. So I pray, Father, for this congregation and for those watching at home, that you will help us to see you, open our eyes to see beyond our circumstance and to see you as our glorious, reigning, transcendent Savior. For our light affliction, which truly is but for a moment, thank you that it is working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Thank you that we are to look at the things that are not seen rather than the things that are seen, for the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Help us to see things eternally. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.